Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke 5. Uh, we are diving in. Uh, we, we introduced this a little bit last week. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, introduced this last week that we're going to spend this week and the following two weeks talking about discipleship. Uh, so discipleship has been a part of the story of Redeemer since the very beginning, uh, which we'll hit on a little bit in this sermon. Um, but recognizing that coming out of the summer um, and kind of kind of recalibrating life, I know we're not done with the pandemic. Um, Lord knows we are, are, are looking forward to the day when we can be completely done with it. We're not done with it, but we want to kind of make a push uh, to help people understand what is discipleship and then help get people into discipleship groups for those who are interested. So you'll hear a lot about this in the coming weeks. So if you have your Bibles, Open them up uh, to Luke 5. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then we are going to dive into it together. Uh, Luke 5, 27 to 32. All right, here we go. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the word, and we hold it up over ourselves uh, and recognize that we submit to it, not the other way around. We come to the preaching of your word, the, the reading of the scripture throughout the service, uh, taking communion to be formed by you, not to fit you into who we are. Father, give us that spirit of submission to you. Help us to recognize where we are off and through the Holy Spirit correct our thinking as well as our actions and remind us that we are free to be with you, not because of our goodness, not because of how much we know about the Bible, but because of your great love for us. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in our midst this morning. We pray for those who have gone through loss even this week. We pray for those who are confused about life and the curveballs that have been thrown to them this week. We pray for those that are in uh, a seemingly a feeling of despair based on their financial situation or their housing situation or their relationships in their life. We pray for those that are struggling through friendship, those who are struggling through marriages. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that there would be healing today, supernaturally, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, give us hearts that are stirred to worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. After, the, after this, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth and said to him, Follow me. Luke 9.22, he says, then he said to them all, the author says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and do what? Follow me. Whoever wants to lose their life, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. It goes on in Matthew 4 to say, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, 
Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they did what? They followed him. We see in the Gospels from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the call to the original disciples to leave their life and follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me 13 times in those four Gospels. Jesus was calling these men to leave their livelihoods, yes, leave their jobs, yes, but more than anything, leave their understanding of how to live life and follow Jesus. Jesus what w- it was what was known as a rabbi, a teacher, and his ask for them, in essence, was to come be an apprentice, apprentice of me and follow me. To help understand the excitement around this call, what it must have felt like to these early disciples, we see Andrew, who was clearly awesome, who met Jesus for the first time, spent the day with him, and then what did he do? He rushed home to his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found who we are called to follow. So friends, as we think about our call, our call as a people, individual and as a church, it comes down to these two words, follow me. Come and be a disciple. In fact, when we think about the mission of Redeemer, this is what we are called to do. What we have said is the mission since the first day we opened the doors to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through our words and our lives and to make disciples of Christ and to live as people who are loved, accepted, and transformed by Christ. So we ask ourselves, if Jesus is calling these people to come follow him, call into a relationship of discipleship, what is a disciple? What is he calling them into? The short definition that we will use today and throughout the coming weeks is a disciple is simply someone learning and applying the teachings of Jesus. Sure, there is a lot more that we could put under that. We could write dissertations about what it is to be a disciple, but in its simplest form, it is a man or a woman who is looking at Jesus saying, I want to learn from you, and I want to apply these teachings into my life. We see the beauty and the simplicity of the call here. Follow me. It's a command, but I think it's better viewed as an invitation. But what it is, is an invitation to be second. Now, we can all think of a time when Jesus, when following Jesus, that was easier for us or kind of made the most sense. For many of us, this came when we became a Christian or when we were coming out of a difficult time. Brought us out, God brought us out of a lifestyle or a situation that we were in. He clearly spoke to us and we heard him with just supreme clarity and conviction. We looked at how we were doing life and we were like, this is clearly not working. And as Carrie Underwood famously put it, Jesus, come and take the wheel. Come take over. We will follow you. When I was 18, my best friend in the world was a guy named Yu Nagai. Well, Yu Nagai, he was Japanese, and presumably still is, and somehow we 
convinced our parents, we went to high school together and we graduated uh, many uh, years ago, and somehow we convinced our parents to let us take a trip to his home country of Japan. And so after we graduated, uh, we left for a month-long expedition. It was insane. I cannot, I mean, I cannot, as a dad, like, get my head around my mom and dad saying, yeah, this is a great idea. Go ahead, like, send to get on this plane, you know, to L.A. and then over to Tokyo and just have a great time with no parental supervision for a month. But that's what they did. So Henley kids, like, they're not even in here. Please don't tell them this is what we did when we were 18 because they're not getting to do this. But I worked all year to save enough money to make this trip happen. And we got on a plane, flew to L.A., then flew into Tokyo. And when we got to Tokyo, my friend, his, name, his first name was Yu, but it's, it's kind of confusing sometimes when I say his whole name, Yunagai. When we got to, Yunagai, when we got to Tokyo, Yunagai, he was clearly very comfortable in the country. He grew up there until he was about 12 years old, then he moved to Atlanta, very comfortable. We pop out of the airplane, get into a subway, then, then go into the middle of downtown Tokyo. Well, if you've never seen pictures and never been to Tokyo, it's absolutely insane. There's a picture of downtown right here. Absolutely insane. There's like eight bazillion people. Everybody's moving a million miles an hour, speaking a language that I do not understand. And I, at this point, as an 18-year-old, am borderline panicking. But we get off the shuttle from the airport, and my friend Unigai said that we need to go find, from the point we were at, from the shuttle from the airport, go find kind of the master map of the subway system in Tokyo. And I was like, great. Like, once we find that, I will feel a lot better and be totally comfortable in this place. So we get to the subway map, and it looks like this. At this point, I am 100% panicking. And so uh, this is the most overwhelming I can ever remember being. And at this point, I realized that if I lost my friend, Unigai, at this point, I may not ever see my family again. This is 2001, remember? So there's not, you know, I'm sure somebody has, like, an international cell phone, but we clearly did not. I had a, a Timberland backpack with a Walkman with my CDs in it and a, a suitcase full of khakis, jeans, and T-shirts. Like, I was in no way prepared to be in Tokyo on my own at 18 years old. If it would have been, if I had known about these, it would have been a smart investment to put up on one of these backpack leashes, uh, just like that. I wish, looking back, that you and a guy was that person in the jeans and I was that little girl being held around Tokyo together, completely overwhelmed, worried to death I'm going to lose Unigai and be lost forever. But thankfully, this didn't happen. For a month, we went all over Japan staying with his family, and I looked to my friend for direction every step along the way. If he told me we were leaving from a place, I packed my bags and got ready. If he told me that I should take off my shoes when I walk into someone's house, I took off my shoes when I walked into their house. If he told me to eat some sushi that looked like raw salmon egg, I ate that sushi and threw it up in the toilet about 20 minutes later, but I did whatever he asked me to do. I mean, at one stop, there was a time where a city about two hours south of Tokyo where he has an uncle who lived there who was a hairdresser. And I can remember sitting in or lying awake at night, having to use the restroom, going into the wrong door in this apartment and just seeing like 17 mannequin heads like in the dark with just a little bit of hint of light coming through, scared to death at this point. He went right back to bed. And this same uncle, I remember Unigai said, this uncle who's a hairdresser has never styled a white person's hair. So to be kind of submissive to the culture, you should let him style your hair. And I was like, cool, that sounds great. Like whatever you tell me to do, I'm doing this was the result of that right there. 
bleached blonde hair. Uh, that was, it was even the worst of it. I remember walking off the airplane, mom being like, that's, that's not my son. Like, that's not my boy anymore. And friends, I don't, I, I tell you all this, and I don't think it's fair to blame Jesus for our poor hair decisions, um, but my experience 20 years ago has unbelievable parallels to what it is to be a follower of Jesus. In that moment when I got off the plane and I'm in downtown Tokyo in the subway system, I recognize I do not need to be figuring this out on my own. But instead, I need to submit to the one who knows where we are going. At different points along that month, there were tons of times where I said, I don't even think, I don't even know if this is the best decision, but I trust you know this is best decision. And he clearly wasn't Jesus based on that hairstyle, not making the best decisions for me. But the parallels all are that Jesus, throughout the course of our lives, is going to ask us to do things that feel uncomfortable to us, but are the best things for us. And you've probably had to deal with that this week. I promise you, at some point this week, one of you was, a, was deeply offended, was hurt by someone else, and had to ask yourselves, what does it look like for me to forgive someone else? That is a call of discipleship on your life. Some of you have been challenged with, what does it look like for me to stick with commitments, let my yes be yes and my no be no this week? What does it mean for me to stand up for biblical truth? What does it mean for me to become less important and for Jesus to become more important? This idea of discipleship is a call over and over again to submit to the way of Jesus, trusting him with our lives, over trusting ourselves. You see, I understood 20 years ago that my desperate need for a leader and a guide, and this is what we admit as Christians. Christ is our leader, and we are his followers. But gosh, this rubs against us in so many ways, as well as our culture. We think about uh, the idea of walking to, if you can find a brick and mortar a bookstore at this point, I promise you will have a, a, a bookcases full of books on leadership, a whole genre. People making millions of dollars. Some of those books are wonderful, and I'm thankful for them. But interestingly enough, I've never seen a how-to-be-a-follower section of books at Barnes & Noble. Now, follower is a term that has gained popularity in recent years on social media, whether Instagram or Twitter, and has enabled people to kind of brag about, this is how many followers I have. But even with that, I've never heard somebody brag about saying, I follow thousands of people. I read this story this week, and admirer asked this guy who's a famous orchestra director, a guy named Leonard Bernstein, and I did not know who he was until I read this story, so it's okay if you don't as well. Celebrated orchestra conductor, and he asked him, what's the hardest position for you to fill in your orchestra? And he replied without hesitation, second fiddle. I can always get plenty of first violinists, which threw me off, violin, fiddle, same thing here. I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. Yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. So isn't it interesting that the primary word for people who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior is the word follower, the word disciple. 
Now, in the context of Jesus' day, like I said, a disciple was a follower, not just in a general sense, but also in a particular way. A disciple tended to either be a pupil, someone that sat at the feet of a master, or an apprentice to some sort of, someone in some sort of trade. And I think about this, that even for the first disciples, they never graduated on to something else. They started a follower, and their best and highest calling was a more faithful follower. And one of the many reasons for this is that the disciple is always one who is in a position of humility. They are never the master with all the answers, but are the ones who sit at the feet of the one who has the answers. So being a disciple is to be a follower, but not just in a casual way. Because we can follow lots of things. We can be a follower of your favorite sports team or a, a politician or a musician. But to be a disciple, the distinction here is to turn over your life to them and ask that their wisdom may direct you. So that's discipleship. It's following Jesus every day and becoming more and more like him. And what did the disciples do when we look and we read these Gospels? What did we see them doing? We see that they spent time with Jesus. They watched him do miracles. They broke bread with him. They were vulnerable with him. They listened to his teaching. They were discipled by him. They were amazed by him. Brothers and sisters, this is the model for us today. We see it in the passage we read at the very beginning in Luke 5, where Jesus calls Levi, the first thing that he does is teach him that Jesus is not there for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He calls him into discipleship and immediately teaches him and blows up his paradigm of what it is to be someone who is called by Jesus. So what I'm saying here is that when Jesus invited this group of first century Jewish fishermen and tax collectors and zealots to follow him, he didn't just say, let's keep in touch. He literally meant, come with me right now and live as I live. Learn a way of life in a faith by watching me live. But what we have to understand that this is a shift that every one of us has to make. We go from being in charge to, get, to transitioning to saying, not my will, but your will be done. Priscilla Shire has a great quote in one of her Bible studies, and she says, will you surrender your plans and your purposes into the greater known of God's unknown designs for your life? What she is saying in this quote is that are you willing to submit to not knowing where you're going, but trusting that he does. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him, and this illustrates you know, the difficulty of that question, came to him and said, what good thing, Jesus, must I do to get eternal life? This is from Matthew 19. Jesus pointed out that salvation does not come from good deeds and knowing the man's heart. Jesus told him then, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then he says, then come follow me. Recognizing at that point, Jesus is asking him, saying, I know that you think you know how to live your best and highest life. It's with all of these things. But for you, you've made an idol out of that. So to come follow me me means you have to trust my way of life is better than yours. And this is where being a disciple isn't just 
joining a social club that we opt in and opt out of based on our schedule and our desires. It's not like being a season ticket holder to the Hawks where if our schedule gets busy or they trade Trey Young, we just say we're out on this and we're going to stop supporting you. No, it's an invitation to follow him with with our whole being. So what is a disciple? Again, a disciple is someone learning and applying the teachings of Jesus. When we think about the teachings of Jesus, we have to understand that we sign up for discipleship to be apprentices. We are signing up to radically love our neighbors. When you're signing up to be a disciple of Jesus, you're looking at a blank sheet of paper and signing the bottom saying, we will go where you lead us. We will be the men and women you've called us to be. And when we see the Gospels, we see that the type of women and men that we are called to be are people that radically love our neighbors, radically advocate for the vulnerable, radically give financially and with our time, radically repent of our sin, confess that deep, dark secret that happened this week that no one knows about, to bear with one another and lay down our lives. And when we lay it out like that, we have to ask ourselves, why would anybody do this? It sounds overwhelmingly difficult, but also even more than that, just overwhelmingly kind of contra to how our minds naturally work. For brothers and sisters, it really all comes down to trust. David Platt says, if you can trust God to save you for eternity, you ultimately can trust him to lead you for a lifetime. When you come to Jesus, you don't necessarily get health, wealth, and prosperity. You come to Jesus first and foremost to get Jesus. Radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, not prosperity in this world necessarily. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all of those things. That blank sheet of paper says, not only this is what I'll do for you if you put it on this piece of paper, this is what I'll give to you if you ask me for it. But in the end, such risk finds its reward ultimately in Jesus. If he is enough, we can risk everything else. Because in the end, we understand that our best life is not necessarily, as the world says, finding our authentic self. Yes, turn from your people-pleasing. Yes, God has uniquely gifted and made you, so you can stop trying to be someone you're not. But your best self is not leaning into who is my most authentic being. Your best self is being so blown away by the person and work of Jesus that you have forgotten about yourself. Because Jesus doesn't stop it. I want you to lose yourself. He says, lose yourself to find yourself. Brothers and sisters, that confusing passage ultimately means I want you to die to your old approach to identity and get a new sense of individual self. There's a book called The Age of Anxiety, and it's a satirical book kind of poking fun at the Western obsession with this idea of finding ourselves in it there's a great line that that reads miserable wicked me how interesting i am other people have also noted this obsession that we have with finding and fulfilling our deepest desires as that's supposed to be the main thing we do with our lives almost seems that jesus has us in mind when he says that you're never going to find out who you really are by trying to find who you really are you're going to have to do what 
lose yourself. This call, let me say it again, the best self, this call is to forget yourself, but not at, not at your expense, but to gain what it is to be someone that worships Christ more and grows more and more in gratitude for Him. Platt goes on to say, I'm convinced that when we take a serious look at what Jesus really meant when He said, follow me, we will discover there is far more pleasure to be experienced in Him, indescribably greater power to be realized with Him, and a much higher purpose to be accomplished for Him than anything else this world has to offer. And as a result, we will all, every single Christian in this room, eagerly, willingly, and gladly lose our lives to know and proclaim Christ, for this is simply what it means to follow Him. So, brothers and sisters, the promise I lay out to you is that Jesus is worth following. And the deeper we lean into being a disciple of Jesus, the deeper we grow in gratitude for who He is and the more alive we become. And the beautiful part of discipleship is that we do not do this alone. The disciples were sent out in pairs. The early church was deeply committed to community. Take a moment this week to read Acts, especially Acts 2. The commandments given in the epistles are assuming that men and women are deeply entrenched in vulnerable relationship with each other. So what does discipleship look like in community? There's three things. We're going to cover these in the coming weeks. Intentional studying of Jesus in the Scripture, in relationship, and confession and the power of prayer. So we're not just going to give you a call to discipleship. Here at Redeemer, we're going to invite you into leaning into discipleship group relationships at the church. And we recognize that this is not, not everyone is in a season of life to lean into this, but we want to give you the promise that the deeper you lean into discipleship, the deeper the joy you will have will grow. And in that, we look not to ourselves, but to the promises that Jesus has in Scripture. Redeemer, the Lord is doing something in this season. And He's inviting us not just to gather, not just to worship, not just to continue reaching out to our neighbors, but He's inviting all of us to do these things while leaning into being people who are learning and applying the teachings of Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Father, we are so grateful for the invitation you have to discipleship. The invitation we have as followers of you to become more deeply and deeply intimately connected to you. Father, give us hearts, give us desires, give us the willingness to lean in to understanding you more and more.